Spandrels, Psychedelics, Hidden Gods, Four Chord Songs, Charles Wesley's Tasteful Use of Bar Tunes, The Science of the Mind, and Contemplation. This is Logos-ish. Today we talked to Dr. Sarah Ritchie about belief formation and a thousand other things. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. This is John. We are excited to be back with you this week. I am joined by Brian and our guest, Sarah Ritchie. So in a minute, we're going to be talking about a variety of different things related to theology and science. I am so, so excited for today's episode. I had a lot of fun reading the article that we decided to talk about this week. But first, we should probably check in. Brian, how are you doing? Uh, life's pretty great right now. We're back to worship in person at the garden, and it is, we're starting to get back into what might be, a, I hate to say new normal, but something that's a little bit more familiar to all of us. And I don't know about you, John, but that's a little comforting to me. We really should come up with a better term for new normal. I mean, at this point, it's just normal. At what point does it phase from new normal into normal? Do we have a timeline that we adopt? Is there some kind of signal that we need to give to each other? Is it an experiential thing? Like, does it just start to feel normal over time? What do you think, Brian? I think when you get to the point where you don't remember what was like as like normal, I think that's when it is. So like for me, that happens sooner rather than later because I was already like, ch I changed jobs in the middle of the pandemic and things like that. So, you know, that's a part of it too. So what you're saying is normal is when my goldfish memory just defaults back to whatever it was at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, that's fair. And John, John, just for everyone listening, John probably has the best memory of like all of our hosts. So goldfish is not how I would describe that. So I'm gonna call it goldfish normal from now on. That's I, I can agree to that. All right, perfect. because uh, goldfish are so delicious. I see that's a cracker reference, friends. Not a uh, not your pet. So there you go. I was about to just be like, "What do you? What did you do?" <laughs> I was I was making a. Uh, these people are not our sponsors, but you know they could be reference. All right, well let's let's bring Sarah into the conversation. Uh, how are you doing today, Sarah? Is everything going well over there in uh, Scotland? Right? Yeah. <laughs> My in-laws are in town and we just got back from taking my little girl to the zoo for the first time. But of course it was a very Scottish experience, which meant that it rained the entire time and everybody was like dressed in like parkas and umbrellas and none of the animals were out because they're sensible. So yeah, it was a great time. Great time. So what kind of like biodiversity do they have at the zoo over there? I mean, to me, it's a little bit, it's an unfortunately like wide diversity, I would say. I mean, they have a lot of animals that are not supposed to be in the Scottish climate, frankly. And I, I, I get the sense that few of them are very happy with the situation. Do they have like any indoor spaces, like like tanks and, and habitats that are, you know, you have the glass barriers? Yeah, I think in normal times they do, but because of COVID, they're all closed off. So everything is more or less in the open or like in a walkthrough situation. So, I mean, yeah, so the, basically the only real close-ups that we had of the animals were the rhinos, the two rhinos who were like huddled in the stable and were like not going anywhere. And uh, two lion cubs as well in the similar situation. So they were perfectly happy to sleep the day away inside. 
Yeah, I think I would be too. Uh, I've never been to Scotland, but Ireland, part, parts of Ireland have a similar sort of climate, I, I yeah. would assume. Yeah, it's close. And I have very, very fond, I'm going to emphasize fond, <laughs> memories of, of standing in a light drizzle in the freezing cold, wondering, is this really spring? It was, it was certainly yeah. a life-changing experience. Yeah, that's most of Scotland. All right. Well, I'll look forward to visiting someday soon. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Right. So yeah, my name is Sarah Lane Ritchie. I'm a uh, lecturer in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh, which is in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, I've been here for just about eight years now. I did a master's degree and a PhD here and also did a postdoc in St. Andrews. And which, for those of you who are up on your royal knowledge, is where... Um, Prince William and Princess Kate Middleton went to university and, and met and fell in love and all of that. So I have my, my academic background is in science and religion. So I do a lot of science and theology, science and religion, and my particular uh, research focus is on the mind and the relationship between the brain and human experience and understandings, perceptions, relationship with God. So it's very inter interdisciplinary, the work that I do, and it, it's broad enough that I get to dive deep into a variety of topics that are really fun, just really fun stuff. I'm originally from Michigan. I did a, an undergraduate degree, actually at a Methodist school, a pre-Methodist school in Southern Michigan. And then I did a, my MDiv at Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey before going to Hong Kong for a year and then made my way to Scotland. So been a bit all over the place. And I can say more about my personal history, but that's kind of like the broad academic overview. That's great. That's great. That's a really cool journey. What took you to Hong Kong? Well, when I, when I finished seminary, I was really unsure what I wanted to do next. I didn't have a normal seminary path. I basically went to Princeton to figure out if God existed, which is not a good reason to go to seminary. It, was, it wasn't the most successful endeavor. But I, um, I really loved my time at Princeton, and I, I, did, I, I went quite deep into science and religion there, working with a scholar named Fensel van Heistein, who is one of the leading uh, figures in the field. And so he was the chair of science and religion when I was there, and I was able to really explore incredible topics that I'd never been exposed to before. And so I was very interested in science and religion. At the same time, I was also going quite deep into pastoral theology, which at Princeton is basically the intersection of psychology and theology. And it was another aspect of science and religion, but more, I would say, person-centered, more human-focused. And so at the end of seminary, I was really unsure what I wanted to do next. I knew I, was, I wanted to do a PhD, but I didn't know which area I wanted to do it in. So I decided to take a year and just work and travel. I had spent my teen years abroad with my family in Pakistan and Bangladesh. So it was weird to me to have spent the last few years in, a, in the U.S. And so uh, I basically just went to work in a church for a while in Hong Kong, just a short-term thing. And yeah, it was a fun experience. That's so cool. I just I just need to throw that out there for a minute <laughs> and just be like, that's so awesome. It is awesome because literally John and I were just talking about Hong Kong right before you came onto the call. Funny. Yeah, and it's we are interested in world travel, and John and Sarah and Garrett, Garrett and his spouse, and and I have all done some world traveling. So I, it's always great to hear like where people have been, where they've lived, and what they enjoyed. So to work our way a little bit into our topic for today, I'm curious 
to ask you, does God exist? And if so, why can't I always feel that? Well, those are two different questions for sure. And the first one, um, does God exist? I don't know. I don't know. And it, um, most people actually don't know. They think they know, but they probably don't know. And uh, it would also, your answer would, of course, depend on how you define God, how you understand God, and what you mean, how you understand existence. When most people talk about existence, they think of like an object in the world. But of course, whatever God is, God can't exist in the same way that my water bottle exists, right? So for God to exist must mean something different than our kind of colloquial, random person on the street understanding of existence. And the same thing with God, right? So when we talk about God, most of us have some sort of anthropomorphized version of God, even if we're really trying to resist that, you know, old man in the sky image, we still tend to have some sort of idea of God as being a personal being in the way that we understand personal being. So, I mean, whatever God is, of course, God can't have a body like ours. And that immediately throws into question what it means to talk about God as a being and as a personal being. So it's even just an asking the question, does God exist? We have a huge conversation or a huge question, question to be answered about what it even means to talk about God and what it means to talk about God being or existing. Now, I am happy to affirm that, that, there, that there is a, an ultimate reality that is, that is beyond our wildest possibilities of comprehension. And depending on the day, I'm willing maybe perhaps to put a few more characteristics around the ultimate reality, but I'm fairly humble when it comes to certainty around describing what God might be like. Now, the second question is, uh, in some ways, much more easy, much easier to answer. So why don't we always feel God? Well, what, well, what do we mean by feel God? What it, to experience God? What does that mean? Now, a lot of us, when we talk about experiencing God, we might think back to like summer camp when we were 14 or something, or we might think back to like a, a, an in-person worship service before lockdown began when we were all, you know, crammed into a a crowded auditorium with mood lighting and a fog machine and a guy in skinny jeans up on stage and a dude with a guitar playing a four chord song over and over and over again, you know? So we remember what it feels like to experience like a fairly emotionally laden encounter with God. But uh, anybody who understands themselves as existing in relationship to God will actually be having a broader understanding of what that experience is, right? So even if you're not having an, an intense emotional experience or religious experience, you are likely to, if you call yourself, if you understand yourself as existing in a relationship with God, you're likely to be experiencing very small moments of that relationship throughout your day, throughout your week. Different people describe that differently. And what we know is that all experience in the world involves our bodies, involves our brains, it involves our sensory mechanisms, it involves our attention, what we're paying attention to in the world. And what is becoming increasingly clear is that whether or not we experience something we call God is dependent on a lot of factors other than whether or not God wants to engage with us. So even if God is totally willing to engage with humans in a way that is very salient and, and, and understandable, visceral, even if that is the case, 
we still are humans in bodies and in environments. And there are all sorts of things that would prevent us or enable us to experience God to greater or lesser degrees. Yeah. So the name of the problem that we're kind of getting at is, is the hiddenness of God, right? And the history of the treatment of that problem has historically been primarily focused on what God is doing or not doing. Is that correct? Yes. So the problem of divine hiddenness, well, we should distinguish it from the dark night of the soul. So uh, many people are familiar with what we, what we would call the dark night of the soul, which is basically believing in God, but feeling like God is just not present to you. That's different than divine hiddenness. Divine hiddenness is more of a philosophically defined problem where, where it is a problem that there are people out there who want to believe in God, or at least aren't fighting belief in God but just don't experience God as real. This is the, these, these are people who might be speakers. They might be people who are actually really hungry for some sort of relationship with a transcendent being that we call God, but just don't, just don't believe. They just don't. And that is, that's kind of the problem that we're talking about here. Like, why are there people who are wanting a relationship with God, but just don't have access to it seemingly? And so in historical and historical and traditional and philosophical discussions, this has usually been talked about as a problem on God's part. So if God exists, then God should be reaching out and engaging with people who are open to that. And if God's not, then that's a problem and we need to explain why. So, and actually what happens is that a lot of people end up debating divine hiddenness in much the same way as they they would debate the problem of evil. So the problem of like, why is there so much suffering and pain in the world? Like if God existed and was loving, wouldn't God be doing something to to lessen the degree of pain that is out there. And the same thing kind of applies to divine hiddenness. Like if God existed, wouldn't God be like making God's self known to people who are open open to relationship in this way? I think that's a really good point. And just for everybody who's listening, like as we're thinking about like God's hiddenness, a topic that also comes up in my mind is just God's like otherness or uniqueness in separation from creation And how that's like a theological problem that's a contributing factor, at least in this, and how we have traditionally talked about God, at least in the last couple centuries. For those of you keeping track at home of where we are theologically. Are you just resisting so hard, Brian, saying the words infinite qualitative distinction? I was not resisting that at all, but it does take me back to, uh, to a class that I took like eight years ago. To a simpler time. Yes, when I only had but some bills to pay instead of all of them. That pre-pandemic world of seminary. A unique time in everybody's life, I'm sure. Or at least those of us who went. So when we're talking about God's hiddenness, like, what are some of the factors that you have done some more research on that, that are kind of common amongst people like in that? Is it mostly like chemical or is it, or what are the other factors? Yeah, well, it happens. I mean, we're talking about layers and layers, right? So it's not a reduction thing. It's not just like, you know, brain chemicals, although neurochemicals are certainly involved, but it's a, you know, it's a holistic package, right? So we're talking about things like a person's body, what sort of cognitive style you have, your openness, um, there are different personality dimensions that come into play. Someone's neurochemistry comes into play here. Like even down to things like uh, people who are not neurotypical. So like people who are, who are on the autism spectrum are more likely to be atheists than people who are not, you know? So there are just kind of things that are wired into our, our brains and our bodies that we can't do a lot about. And then there are things like the way that you have 
you have developed. So what has your tradition been like? What is your practice like? Did you grow up being primed to experience God in particular settings every Sunday at 1030, right? So your context that you have been developed in will be framing and priming your cognitive possibility space. So you're unlikely to have experiences that you haven't been primed for. We tend to experience God, we'll experience anything really, within particular contexts. And this doesn't just happen in religion. So say there's a, a movie that you're really excited to go see. You're unlikely to feel a dramatic sense of anything if someone were to just like sit you down and read you a script from that movie. But it, it's like the anticipation and the buildup and the no, you know, the, the multi-sensory experience that is going to a premiere, a movie premiere, you know, and you sort of your expectation in part frames what you will experience. It's also perhaps a difference between listening to a live symphony in person. You get dressed up and you go out and you're like, you know, you get front row seats versus being in an elevator and the song comes on as you're kind of going up to the 14th floor to your dentist's office, right? So it's a completely different experience. So your experiences of God are much are much the same or contextualized in similar ways, right? So your the context that you have had available to you will be impacting your experience of God. Of course, your social groups, your community is also enormously important here. If you're not existing within a community that is in the same ballpark as you in one way or another and encouraging the curation and facilitation of experiences with God, then you're not likely to experience God in quite the same way. You're, you're also not cognitively, you're not, you're not aimed in that direction for lack of a better term. But yeah, so there are many, many layers of things that might hinder or help your experience of God. And then of course there are traumatic experiences. You know, a lot of people have been wounded by Christian communities or experiences within religious circles in one way or another. And this can really shut people down emotionally to possibilities that might otherwise have been open to them. Yeah. And so, you know, we could go into a lot of directions on that one, but yeah, so there are, there are multiple layers that contribute causally to whether or not one is experiencing God in a visceral salient way. That was a perfect answer to, to my very very poorly worded question. So thank you for that. John, did you have something you looked like you were about to say something? Yeah, I was just going to kind of try to put some things together and say that, you know, you had mentioned embodiment earlier. uh, And a lot of the things that you listed were combinations of various experiential factors from personal expectation and belief to the physical lived experience of of being in a place at a time. I definitely agree with the symphony example. If I'm not wearing an extraordinarily uncomfortable shirt and sitting in a seat that is far too small, I do not appreciate classical music in in the same way, though it generally is a positive experience. So can we parse that out a little bit? Like, like, why is it so important to make the point that our experience is an embodied experience? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, this is most of my research really is the embodied nature of all belief, not just about, you know, religious belief. We don't have access to any experience except through our bodies. We don't have the option of just being an immaterial mind floating out there in the ether, experiencing reality as it actually is, right? So everything that we experience happens with our body. We are in, we are bodies, we are bodies. You take away our bodies, we will not be experiencing anything. And this impacts, or this should impact the way that we think about all human experience. And in terms of like cognitive science or evolutionary psychology, what we call religious belief and religious experience 
are just subsets of beliefs and experiences more broadly. So scientists don't actually distinguish at the meta level between different sorts of beliefs. I mean, religious belief is just one, one way of one form of belief about our environments. It's not special. This is sort of in the domain of what we call cognitive science of religion. And cognitive scientists of religion explore the mechanisms by which humans evolve to naturally have beliefs in gods. And I say gods plural because it's not just about a monotheistic god. And what we see is that from the beginning of humanity, that beliefs are formed in response to our environments. So we believe that there is a, you know, a leopard hiding behind the tree because we hear the leaves moving, right? So we, beliefs in many ways are just what our beings experience as real. We can distinguish between belief and faith. Uh, and this is actually really an important distinction here. Beliefs are really just things that we take to be true. So like Mark Twain kind of infamously had, he infamously said this quote, faith is about believing what we know ain't so. You can't actually believe what you know ain't so. That's a, that's a contradiction in terms. You might pursue a faith trajectory that you have doubts about, but your beliefs are not that. Your beliefs are basically what you as an embodied being take to be the case about the world. All right, so... I think you get what I'm saying here, that all experiences yeah. embodied, religious experience and religious belief is just one subset of our overall capacity to experience the world through our bodies. Now, then, of course, the big question is, well, how does God fit into this picture? What are we saying if we say that, like, well, humans have, you know, beliefs, but they may have evolved naturally. Doesn't that mean that they're not real? If there are physical explanation, there are scientific explanations for why I feel God's presence, does that mean that God is not actually relating to me? Well, no, not necessarily. And this is where we have to kind of start talking about different understandings of the relationship between God and the world. So most of us tend to think that there's a natural world over here and somewhere over there is God. And these two are fundamentally what we call ontologically basically means just like really, really, really distinct. They're very different. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes every once in a while, maybe God will step in and do something in this natural world. But of course, that's not the only way to think about the relationship between God and physical reality. In many theological traditions, it's perfectly acceptable to affirm that God is intimately involved in all of the physical world. And therefore, it is not inherently threatening to have scientific explanations for how the world works because God's involved with it in the first place. So where we get hung up, where we have a problem, is where we was when we start assuming that the default status of nature is to not be involved with God, is to not be spiritual in some way. But the most rich, robust theological resources suggest that the way that we understand nature should include a high appreciation of physicality because God is involved with that physicality. Yeah, I think there's a variety of people that have pointed, especially to the Reformation, as being a, a point where the, the philosophical systems changed and, and started to, to push people who are religious and theologians. And I, I don't mean to necessarily make a distinction between those two, sorry, but like, uh, you know, that was a period where we started to see a, a big division between the ways of thinking about nature and reality and spirituality and theology, right? Around that time when we have Descartes and Hume and people like that 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot happening around like the, the or the um, scientific revolution and the enlightenment and like, and then, you know, in the, in the reformation, you know, this couple hundred year period, it's really pivotal and change the way, I mean, it's a complex narrative. It's not simple and it changed, but, it, but overall that period of time really changed the way that we think about knowledge in general, how we know things about the world. And there kind of was, it has been an increasing bifurcation between what we would call theological knowledge or knowledge of God and scientific knowledge or knowledge of the world. Now, what's very interesting, this is kind of a side note, but what's very interesting is that a lot of times it was the theologians driving that distinction because they wanted to preserve a place for theological knowledge that was not subject to the dominating kind of force of the mechanistic explanations, right? So for a while, that bifurcation of God and nature really kind of served the theologians well. But it's, I think, I think most, most historians of science and religion would now say that that has outlived its usefulness and that we kind of need to reclaim a more nuanced understanding of knowledge in relationship to both God and nature. Yeah, well, at some point, if you separate them far enough, you wind up pushing one thing so far out to the margins that it's no longer relevant to mm-hmm. your experience, right? Right. And it happens on both sides. I mean, you have, you can be scientistic and do this and say, well, obviously anything religious is, is ridiculous. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a delusion uh, that is serving psychological needs, you know, and, and you need to grow up. That's kind of like the harshest way that you could say that. And then there are people on the other side of the spectrum that will say, well, the only truth that really matters is biblical truth. And the scientific establishment is trying to see the doubt in your mind about God's creative powers and you need to focus on what matters. And the funny part about it is, is that I have experienced both in one congregation. You know, those two people don't really like, like to sit next to each other all the time and, and, and sharing common experiences. And yet somehow they do. The blessing of a broad church. It's like a beautiful thing, but it it can also make it. It's a challenge. It really is. Because then there are always questions kind of from both ends. And I think the vast majority of, uh, well, maybe I'm just making my own experience like way too like general. I think a lot of people are somewhere in the middle. And I think that communicating that that's okay to be in the middle is the way to have productive dialogue with your average person. I, I think like, think about this year, like what, what religious communities could have done to like help vaccination efforts and things like that. Some of which have been great at doing so. Thank you to all of our colleagues like who have helped and encouraged their people to, you know, pursue something that was scientifically like done and done with excellence and is going to have a large impact of when the world gets to something new. And then there are other folks who have been a part of religious communities who have made this really a lot more difficult than it needed to be. It ha- it has real world consequences for how we have this discussion in between Definitely. science and faith. Definitely, oh. yeah. So you had alluded earlier to the idea that, that what we do and how we move through the world affects our experience of religion. So can we talk a little bit about those religious, are they spiritual technologies, religious technologies? Mm-hmm. What's the terminology there? Well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, I talk about spiritual technologies because I like to emphasize that we can be intentional about how we engage with our environments in the physical world in developing our spiritual lives. So most people will very happily 
you know, go through a very immersive worship service or a, you know, a liturgy, or, you know, if you're Catholic, you might be having a lot of like incense and, and, and set prayers and chants and things. And so it's like, there, there are a range of very culturally accepted spiritual practices that really emphasize our bodies. And that can be expressed in movement and sound and smell and taste even. And of course, like hearing and sight. So it's, it's a multi-sensory considerations go into any, any kind of planning of one's religious life. That's not unique. What we're, we're kind of talking about here is not just acknowledging that, right? So it's basically saying, all right, the church has been doing this for thousands of years. You are quote unquote, manipulating yourself. Every time you go out the front door, you are opening yourself up to influence by your environment. So that being the case, that there is no option here, but you are going to be changing your experience by the way that you engage with the world around you. How do we recognize that fact and turn our attention to developing the spiritual path that we have chosen or desire or want? And this is where faith comes in. I mean, I like to, my, my, my kind of a, my core demographic, really, the people I'm most interested in are the people who really struggle, like who, who just don't experience God, who, who long for a connection with reality, who have deep existential concerns, who wake up at 4 a.m. in the middle of the night, like terrified of death. These are the people that I'm really interested in, is people who just don't feel like they have access to the most meaningful experiences that religious people tend to have access to. If you don't believe in God, you can kind of feels like you're screwed sometimes. So I'm really interested in these people. Like, where do you start? If you are somebody who wants to develop a spiritual practice, a spiritual life, how do you do that? And there are a lot of ways to do this. Some of them are very, very normal, right? So things like music, music is super, is, is, is extremely important. Putting yourself in a community of people that are kind of going in the direction that you would like to go into, paying attention to sensory experiences, that focus attention is super important. So developing a contemplative or meditative practice is super important. Pairing things. So even like if you pair intense exercise, so like running with like worship music or something or some sort of like mantra or prayer that you're going over in your head you know that can be very impactful for people I a lot of my current work is on psychedelics actually so looking at particularly intense mystical experiences that are predictably induced by various substances yeah so the list goes on and uh it sort of the the, the conversation can be tailored to wherever people are so some people are like really interested in how to apply this science to church services other people are like I don't want to go into a church ever, but talk to me about psychedelics, you know? So there's, there's a huge spectrum here. I, I love listening to people who've been on like mushrooms talk about meeting Jesus. That's always a really entertaining um, kind like, of yeah. story to hear, especially when you hear the other elements that are floating through those kinds of, you know, psychedelic experiences. Yeah, no, and this is actually, I mean, we could have a big conversation about this. I, I have an article coming out on psychedelics actually in, in theology. So, I mean, there are a lot of questions about the metaphysical and epistemological. So what we mean by that is epistemological is basically like how we know what we know. And metaphysical is like the big questions of the universe. Like what is the nature of reality? There are a lot of open questions that are being debated by philosophers and theologians about non-ordinary states of consciousness. Like how do you know that if you experience something not in your ordinary waking life, but that is not real? What does it mean for something to be real? 
then there's there are interesting questions about the more practical side of things like the therapeutic and spiritual benefits of something like psychedelics like spiritual flourishing and the mental health and physical health benefits of them but that's so there are different conversations that are happening around this but it is very interesting because they are psychedelics are a perfect example of how the quality and the product of the experience are almost completely dependent on the way that you curate them. So you're the set, the setting, the intention, the way that you go into it, how you set it up, what you, like how you prepare yourself for the experience will completely kind of like causally impact the nature of the experience itself. It's that way in church services and it's that way as psychedelics. So it's just really an interesting kind of case study in how intention and attention to detail can really change one's experience. Yeah, that's really interesting. I. I read a book a long, long time ago about a, an anthropologist who had gone down to spend some time with some indigenous folks in the Amazon region. And mm -hmm. he, he wrote very extensively about the ritual practices that go into both various kinds of medicinal and spiritual practices around tobacco and also around you know preparation for drinking ayahuasca. Yep. And I remember being very struck by the intense sort of self-deprivation and management of diet prior mm -hmm. to yeah. those ceremonies where, mm -hmm. you know, the, he had all these things that he had to limit himself on, especially I think it was meat was one of the things that really was just like, they were like, don't eat that. Yeah, no, that's exactly. I mean, yeah, that's exactly how it's treated. I mean, people who are using, I mean, I'm not talking, we're not talking here about like taking psychedelics like recreationally and going to a party. That's not what we're talking about. It's like, we're talking about something much more intentional, very internal. These experiences tend to be very internal and they tend to be structured very carefully in a way that you are addressing something of like existential import to you. And it is a whole life thing. So it's like the days and the weeks leading up to an experience you are preparing. And then in the days and weeks afterwards, you're integrating. And so there's a lot of work on responsible, intentional kind of, you know, integrating of these intense experiences into the lived behaviors and practices that make up the rest of life. And this kind of brings to mind, like something that one of my professors, uh, and this has, this has to do with like preaching and that they're like, you need to prepare your people for what you're going to say. Yeah. And you can. And so you need to be intentional about preparing that, like their other aspects of their, you know, Christian lives to yeah. prepare them for that rhythm that's going to help them hear Sunday. Like, yeah. it's not all just like crafting a message, like if only it were that simple, but it's really preparing your community to dive into deeper experiences that might actually lead them to do the change that you're going to talk about. I mean, I can really see why this is such an interdisciplinary approach because throughout this entire conversation I'm just like I've heard pieces of that yeah. in seminary preaching courses I've heard some of this in psychology courses biology courses and I'm just like wow like it's truly not just interdisciplinary it's it's such a broad spectrum about what we're actually discussing and how all those things are contributing factors to people's religious experiences, or maybe not religious experiences, yeah. depending upon their those factors. Yeah, and you're really highlighting the importance of just being aware. Like awareness is like 60% of the battle. You might not even need to like tell people in the pews, okay, you must prepare in this way for the sermon. 
you can right. sort of just even just by like highlighting to them, hey, it's important to prepare yourself for the experience of hearing the word. Like that is a priming mechanism that will kind of give them agency to go about preparing themselves in the way that is good, that, that, that is effective for them. I mean, I, hope, I think we've probably all been, we're all probably familiar with this general idea that if someone says, hey, pay attention to this, you'll pay attention to it. This is like a very normal cognitive bias that we have that actually can work for us. Mm-hmm. Like once we're, once we're primed to recognize or notice something, we tend to notice it more and more and more. And you can do, I mean, that, that can work to our advantage when it comes to like spiritual practices. Yeah, when I was reading your paper, I couldn't help but start to kind of reflect on which spiritual technologies were comparable to others. And mm-hmm. I'd been sort of floating around. I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit because we read Emily Sigelow's book about Jewish and Buddhist syncretism. And one of the things she argues in that is that a lot of the expanding contemplative practices in in synagogues in America and the crossover between Judaism and Buddhism, the things that have emerged in American culture have been in part because of a generational desire mm-hmm. to find a more experiential mode of religion. And, and so I've been, I've been, this has been floating around in my head for, for, I guess, weeks now, but, you know, it occurred to me that like, when I go to, if I go to like a large evangelical church with like stadium seating and with like a rock band yeah. on stage that sings the same line over and over again for like five mm-hmm. minutes, what I'm experiencing is like the American version of a, a for yeah. me, what is a very terrible like kirtan experience, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the comparisons. But you're also not primed for that experience, John. Like that's n- that's not the experience that you're seeking. But for other folks, like that is deeply meaningful and like that's how they get through their mantras, you know? Yeah, I mean, this is nothing new either. I mean, so you guys are Methodists? as far as I can tell. And I mean, gosh, the Wesleys, the Wesleys. So Charles Wesley, like the great hymn writer. Yeah. He was a master at taking the best bar tunes from the pubs in England and putting some incredibly theologically rich, like lyrics to those tunes and just like letting them have it. Yeah. It's like the Wesleys were masters at this kind of like recognizing the power of folk methods, folk methodology and capitalizing on them for theological ends. They were, I mean, they were brilliant at this. And it's just kind of just the same thing that's been happening throughout all of church history. So there's always been sort of like a syncretism of cultural movements, whether they be religious movements or just like cultural movements across sectors of society that are constantly impacting and changing the other. It's ridiculous to think that like there's some like any, ever any like hermetically sealed discipline or practice or ritual or experience that is sort of somehow divorced from the rest of culture. And Brian, you are absolutely right. I am not primed for that (laughs) experience. So Sarah, if we are thinking about making use of spiritual technologies in our lives, how do we do it in a responsible way? And I, I think what I mean by that is if I want to have a Jesus experience and also still believe in dinosaurs, how do I do that? Well, I mean... Everyone believes in dinosaurs. Young Earth creationists just think they're still with us. I mean, technically, um, they are still with us if you're tracing the evolutionary <laughs> chain down to birds. Exactly. I mean, the birds I saw at the zoo today. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this is the big question of uh, manipulation and discernment. So, the, when I talk about spiritual technologies, the number one question I get is, aren't you just 
encouraging everybody to manipulate themselves, to brainwash themselves. I mean, I'm a, I, I'm no, I'm very vocal as a very like loud critic of evangelical culture. And I'm a huge proponent of exposing the mechanisms, exposing the skeletons, exposing the framework, like listening to the kind of like the, the, the backroom conversations about which songs are going to have the most, you know, visceral pull and increase the numbers at the altar call, right? So I really resist that. And so I'm the first person to always say you have got to be bringing the, this recognition of embodied experience into contact with everything else that you're engaging with in your life. So you need to take the best science, the best philosophy, the best theology that's out there and constantly be bringing that into conversation with the sorts of experiences that you're willing to have. So I am really encouraged by like, I would call them like vaguely religious, like singer songwriters in recent years who are really trying to fill this like huge gap in the market of like really incredible music that is spiritually sensitive and rich and even have a little bit of theology in there, right? But isn't the sort of kind of like mainstream CCM music that can cause like mild PTSD responses. I'm not even being facetious here. Like can cause like actual responses of people who have had bad experiences in the past, right? I'm on the other end of the spectrum, right? So like I, crit- I criticize the evangelicals all, all the time, but I'm also a Presbyterian. I, I am in the Church of Scotland here, which is basically Presbyterian. And I'm the first person here to say, you guys have got to start paying attention to embodiment. Like if you just have like these incredibly dry, dull, like services with these bare, like mumbled hymns that have absolutely no energy that is being given to them, you can do a lot with hymns. And a lot of mainline churches don't do it well. So, I mean, I'm critical of kind of like both ends of that spectrum, the people who sort of are intentionally trying to manipulate you to believe in bad theology and people who are not paying any attention at all to the importance of the body. They're sacrificing the body for what they think of as being disembodied reason. But so lots to say on both ends of of that spectrum. Oh, I mean, thank you for fighting that fight. Uh, Methodism is a very interesting, like kind of cross section in America. Like some Methodist churches are super evangelical in nature and others are more mainline in nature. And I've worked in both and I've tried to take what I've learned from evangelicals and use it against them. And and I, and I absolutely like, I I will tell any of my evangelical friends with that advice. I'm going to do it better than you. Mm -hmm. And the theology is going to be better. And you're just going to have to deal with that. And so far, it has worked in the communities where I've served. What would be super helpful might be a playbook, at least from what our conversation has been today, talking about kind of that, how do you get folks with stronger, healthier theologies to have better, to understand why they need to produce better experiences. And, you know, just uh, for our United Methodist friends, you know, maybe you should read those Wesley's recommendations for singing one more time, because if you did, you might sing with a little bit more passion because he tells you to, but it's, it's just one of those realities of like, we got to do this better. It does help to have a pianist who knows how to play staccato notes and different tempos too. Uh, It's not always the fault of the folks who are out in the audience. Oh yeah. No. So totally, totally, totally agree. So my, my husband is a, is a pastor and uh, he's a church of Scotland minister. He's also an organist. And it's like, he is somebody who cannot stand when traditional organists define the experience for the whole congregation by 
insisting upon like the stodgiest, most unhelpful like temple and pace like that you could ever imagine. And it's like a uh, it's a battle he's always willing to fight. You know, it's just like he can't sacrifice that. Very few songs are meant to be a dirge. Right, exactly, like, exactly. Most of these songs were written literally based on bar melodies. So we should be able to swing a pint with that. Exactly. It's exactly it. Luther's all the German hymns. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I feel like we could go off on this yeah. all day. I do have one last quick question, and it is taking us in a slightly weird direction. It's not something I wrote down before we got on the podcast. Thinking about embodiment, I want to ask you a question that I made the mistake of asking a Facebook clergy group at some point. Never, ever, (laughs) ever, ever suggest anything interesting or heretical in a clergy group. It's a terrible Uh idea. But I want to talk about transhumanism. Like what... What just off the top of your head would you say about the future of religion when you start incorporating ideas about transhumanism into especially digitizing consciousness and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I am... I, I, I am probably anomalous, you know, amongst theologians and even science and religion scholars. I would say most people in my field are quite resistant to transhumanism for ethical reasons and for concerns about equality and, you know, big data and everything. Like there are some concerns, not necessarily, they're not rooted in conservatism. I would say they're rooted in, or they're not rooted in theological conservatism. They're more rooted in like ethical conservatism. But I'm actually really optimistic. I mean, I think when you look at the history of evolution and you look at sort of the way that biological development occurs, we there's like no reason to think that humans have stopped evolving. We are the first species, as far as we know, to be able to, to, to have the agency and the ability to heavily in influence in intentional ways our own evolution. Now that is new, but it doesn't, it's still, it's still contextualized within the broad evolutionary spectrum. And we shouldn't think that we are somehow done evolving. Like that's kind of a really narcissistic and you know, like anthropocentric kind of way of understanding reality to think that we have somehow reached the pinnacle and we are done now. So if that is the case, then there's no reason that we can't think creatively about the future of human experience really like I, my, my sense is that if if we are able to not like destroy destroy ourselves on the planet there's every chance that humans will evolve to become more cognitively in tune with various levels of reality that we might not have access to right now we don't have the sorts of brains and bodies to give us full knowledge of the universe maybe as things evolve and change and maybe as certain technologies are developed we will have deeper and richer experiences of reality because our physical bodies will be enhanced in some way. And perhaps that could be a good thing. I am aware of all the criticism. So don't, don't at me. I got it. I know, I know all the criticism, but like, I'm saying, I just think it's really interesting to think of humans being co-creators with God. Like Ted Peters writes about this. So does uh, Ron Cole Turner. These are theologians who are engaged in the transhumanist conversation. Like there's no reason in principle to insist that humans not participate in their own evolution. That's not necessarily a theological virtue. It could be, it could go the other way. So I'm actually really optimistic about the future of human experience and human understanding of God, even and human knowledge of like God through nature and through our bodies and through the technologies that'll be available to us. Yeah. I mean, if we could have technologies that would allow us to experience, to cognitively experience beyond our current capabilities yeah i would love that i would love that uh i i would i mean i would sign up for that john just just you know kicks i think one of uh i don't know if you had stephen kraftcheck 
when we were at Candler, but uh, I know he's done some writing about that too. So maybe we need to have a panel episode on that. That's true. I'd be thrilled to just sit in the background and record a bunch of very smart people talk about this for a little while. I dig it. I am really thrilled. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. This this has been just a, a really, really fun conversation. And, and I wish it could go on a little longer, but we're getting really close to our time where we typically start to wind down. And we really like to end on a positive note each week. And we typically ask everyone, you know, what's bringing you joy right now? Yeah. So what is bringing you guys joy right now? Do you want to go, Brian? So the weather in my part of the world, Norfolk, has been fantastic recently. I could live at 80 degrees and sunny. Like I could just live in that environment all, all the time. And it's, I've got to spend lots of time outside, which is great. That sounds glorious. I don't think I've seen 80 degrees in years. <laughs> yeah. And no, what's like, what's bringing me joy? So I have a 10 month old daughter named Rowan, Rowan Sophia, and she is an IVF baby. So my husband and I uh, went through a met like years and a lot of pain to get her. And I have to say, I mean, I feel like I'm a, I'm like a career person. Like I love my work. My scholarship means a lot to me. I ne- I'm never somebody who ever wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, like that kind of thing. My God, though, this child has brought me more joy than I could ever, ever have imagined. And you know what? I actually feel bad for men that you don't get to experience what it is like to grow a human inside of your bodies. And even like the birthing process, like... I get, okay, people have different experiences of birth for sure. But like even the birthing process is the most primal, intense experience of like womanhood and personhood that like, I can't, I can't even describe it. I really feel bad for men that you don't get to experience it. It's yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just been incredible. And I've been increasingly like amazed at how like alive I feel with my daughter. It's the coolest feeling in the world. And um Uh, I'm actually kind of thankful that it took me this long to have her because like, I feel like I get to experience her at levels that integrate my academic work and my own spiritual background with just sort of like the primal physicality of having a baby and like getting to engage with her. So yeah, so my, my baby girl is bringing me all sorts of joy. That's so cool. I think I'd shared with you that we're looking forward to our first soon and he'll be here in September, but he's also an IVF baby. So I I sympathize with you on all the the spectrum of things that you have to go through Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. get through that. I, I know my wife, Sarah, would be just so happy if I was the one carrying this baby. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, no, no. It is, um, well, yeah, for sure. There is, yeah, it can, it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, I remember complaining for most of my pregnancy, for sure. Like, I was pretty miserable. I didn't sleep for like six months. Yeah, so I definitely can, uh, I feel you. But like, I'm really excited for you. That's like, it is such an adventure. It really is an adventure. For those of you listening at home or follow us on any social media, hashtag name is Augie should be a, <laughs> something you type in just just so you can be a part of the uh, campaign that I have to help Sarah get the, this child's name to be the name she wants. We'll set up a Twitter poll and that is not the name she wants. Actually, it is the name she wants. I can't <laughs> even lie to myself. Well, I'm just going to cancel this conversation and go off in a different direction. What is bringing me joy this week is, and I want to thank you for this, Sarah, 
when I was reading the paper that you sent us, coming across the word spandrels brought back a yeah. weird number of fond memories for me. You know, I, I always enjoyed doing, you know, evolutionary biology stuff in undergrad. And one of the great joys of my life was discovering how spicy academic debates could be when I read that series of papers that Stephen Jay Gold and Stephen Pinker did, uh, oh, yeah. spandrels back and forth. It was, it was a, a life changer for me. So anytime I read spandrels, I think about all the wonderful chuckles I got uh, yeah. reading these two guys who should probably be more mature about it, <laughs> snark at each other. Oh, for papers. sure, for sure. No, spandrel talk is fun. All right. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. For anybody who needs a definition of spandrels, can that be the last question you answer for us? Only if I can tell the origin of how the term even came into being. Okay. So real quick, a spandrel is used in cognitive science of religion to talk about what religious beliefs are. So a lot of people kind of intuitively think that religious beliefs must be an adaptive thing. Like we evolved to religious beliefs because they helped us survive. But the leading kind of strand of cognitive science research in this area suggests that actually it's more likely that religious beliefs are byproducts. So we, we believe things about religions, religious beings like God because we have the capacity to believe other things. So our brains are able to form beliefs and God is one of those beliefs. It doesn't mean God's not real. It just means that religious beliefs are a subset of beliefs more broadly. So this byproduct approach is also called the spandrel approach. Now the spandrel is the coolest thing in the world. It's my favorite architectural feature. My only, my only architectural feature I know. So um, this came about when Stephen Jay Gould, uh, an anthropologist, I think, he was at San Marco Basilica and he was sitting there and he was working on this paper in his head or whatever kind of mythic mythic story here but it did, i think i think this actually happened to one degree or another and he's sitting in this in this cathedral san marco basilica and you can just google this spandrel s-p-a-n-d-r-e-l san, san marco and, in, in, and he was looking at the arches in the in the cathedral so if you look at, uh, if you go into one of these cathedrals, they're heavily decorated. There is artwork all over, all over the arches and the, and the ceiling and the domes. And he noticed that there's a particular piece of the arch, like just above the arches within the, within the cathedral. And these arches have to be there. These little, these little triangle pieces above the arches, they have to be there. They're called spandrels. They have to be there to hold up the building. If they weren't there, the building would fall down. Now on those spandrels is painted really beautiful artwork. Those spandrels don't exist for the artwork, but they allow the artwork to exist. So the purpose, the function of those spandrels is to hold up the building, but they were then used for the purpose of art by the painter in the cathedral. The same thing, so the theory goes, is happening with religious belief, where we have the capacity to form beliefs about our environment. Religious beliefs don't have, we don't, our brains don't have to be focused on God. But because we have the brains that we do, we can form religious beliefs. Our religious beliefs are possible because of the sorts of brains that we have at the end. As the official fact checker for our podcast, if you want to go visit San Marcos Basilica, you just need to go to Venice. Yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that. It's in Venice, only underwater, like half the year. Just half the year. Half the year.
there. <laughs> For now, it might be worse later. Yeah, I think spandrel is possibly the only architecture term a lot of biologists know. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys so much for being here. Sarah, where can people find you if they want to learn more or read more of your work? So you can follow me on Twitter, but I can kind of say a lot of things that make people upset. But that's cool. So it's at Eslane Ritchie. You can follow me on Facebook if you want. A lot of people follow me on Facebook. Sarah Lane Ritchie, University of Edinburgh, you'll find me. Uh, I'm on a lot of podcasts, so if you just like search for me and your preferred podcast provider, you'll find a lot, a lot of me there. There, there's some open access articles you can you can get access to just by searching for me on Google. Very cool. We'll, we'll direct people to those in the show notes as well. If you have made it all the way to this point in the episode, I want to encourage you to like, subscribe, rate, do whatever you happen to do on every single podcast app you have on your phone. Or alternatively, come check out our bookshop, our website. We do some other writing and other things too. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod, as well as on various other social media platforms, and we just ask that you please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast so that we can help get the word out to everybody about what we have going on over here at Logosish.